Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 8 this evening. In Philippians chapter 1, in verse 3, the Bible says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity for us to be able to be here. And I pray that you would take the moments that we have and that you would use them. Lord, I need you to go before me and do your work that only you can do. Father, I don't want to preach in the power of the flesh. I don't want to try and manipulate or try and coerce. Father, I do want to preach with your power. I thank you that your word does not return void. I thank you for the folks that are here this evening. I pray that you bless them for being here. Encourage their precious hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. If you're taking notes, you'd like to write it down. You could put either fellowship of the gospel or fellowship in the gospel or partnering in the gospel. LeBron James, when he was with the Cleveland Cavaliers, he had a partnership with McDonald's. He signed a multi-year contract with the organization. I don't know if he still has that, but he did sign a multi-year contract with the organization. And the reason for this high-powered partnership between LeBron James and McDonald's is really found in the words of James. He said, McDonald's and I make a great team. He said, we share many of the same core values. What are core values? According to nps.gov, core values, uh, the, the, the core values are this. The core values of an organization are those values we hold which from the foundation, which form the foundation on which we perform, work, and conduct ourselves. Core values are those values we hold which form the foundation on which we perform work and conduct ourselves. We have an entire universe of values, but some of them are so primary, so important to us, that throughout the changes in society, government, politics, and technology, they are still the core values we will abide by. In an ever-changing world, core values are constant. Core values are not descriptions of work we do or the strategies we employ to accomplish our mission. The values underlie our work how we interact with one another, and which strategies we employ to fulfill our mission. The core values are the basic elements of how we go about our work. They are practices we use or should be using every day in everything we do. They go on to say that core values, they govern personal relationships. They guide business uh, processes. They clarify who we are. They articulate what we stand for. They help explain why we do business the way that we do it. 
They guide us in how to teach. They inform us on how to reward. They guide us in making decisions. They underpin the whole organization. And they require no external justification, just essential tenets. So if one is going to be in partnership with another, and they want an organization to be a success, they must share or hold dear, dear or live by the same core values. But can I tell you this evening that core values are not something that the world has come up with. Core values are biblical. See, they're really at the heart of Christianity. Because remember, core values are what we live by, what underpins the whole organization, or what we would say is the organism, the local church. So there are certain things that underpin or set or form the foundation of we who are the church, and it should dictate the way that we live. And each believer, every one of us this evening, we're to live by a certain set of core values from the Word of God in order to partner in the gospel. Well, what is the gospel that we're to partner in, you might say? Well, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in order that sinful man may come to know Christ. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. We're standing in the gospel by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory which I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 3.18 records the gospel this way, For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So for us as believers, that's the gospel. That's what we believe the gospel is because of what the Bible says. And so the gospel is to be the underpinning of all that we do. It's to form the foundation of who we are, and it should, it should shape the way that we live. This evening, I'd like us to see three life-changing effects of partnering in the gospel. Partnering in the gospel. What are some life-changing effects if you and I were to partner in the gospel? I want you to take a look at verses 3 and 4, if you would, please. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. When you partner in the gospel, one of the effects of that is joy. Here's an obvious attitude of partnering in the gospel. He says, I thank my God, making requests with joy. See, the attitude of Paul and his inward disposition was not affected by his current situation. The attitude of Paul and his inward disposition was not affected by his current situation. Matter of fact, we find, you say, well, what was his current situation? In Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we find that he was in prison. Now, it's not like the prisons that we have today. And I'm not going to go into that, but just suffice it to say 
that you didn't get three, three square, you didn't get uh, cable TV, you didn't get a workout room, you didn't get, you know, all those added amenities now. They were really treated lower than animals, to be honest with you. And he says, in the midst of being treated lower than an animal, he says, I thank my God, making requests with joy. See, he lived in a state of peaceful joy because he knew the source of his joy. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, everything that we need is found in the gospel. We don't need to go beyond the gospel. Everything we need is in the gospel. All that we need is to go deeper into the gospel and try and understand it a little bit more. And joy is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, his joy was not based upon what the Philippians did or did not do, but it was based upon what Christ had done in them and would continue to do. Did you hear what I said? His joy was not based upon what the Philippians did or did not do, but it was based upon what Christ would continue to do in them. See, too many times do we not uh, look at other believers and see the flaws in them and then we become, quote-unquote, disappointed with them or it causes us heartache. And I'm not saying that we should not grieve with those who grieve and, and those type of things, but we look at that individual and we lose the hope that they have in Christ, and we, we, we lose what we ought to be looking at and saying, you know what, they may have fallen uh, into sin or whatever the case may be, and we need to restore them. We understand that. But let's not focus in on the sin. Let's focus in on what Christ will continue to do in them. It says, he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So instead of when they fall down, stomping on them, instead of uh, putting them down and continually reminding them of their sin, instead of that, let's help restore them, lift them up and say, look, I, I know that Christ can do a great work in and through you. Because so many times when we fall into sin, the first thing we think is God's done with me. Now God can't use me. Man, I, I've blown it now. But Paul realized that his joy was not found in what the Philippians did or did not do. His joy was based upon what Christ had done in them and would continue to do in them as they partnered with him in the gospel. See, this joy, there was a basis for it. He says, my God, my God, reveals to us the deep intimacy and communion that Paul had with the Lord here. He says, I thank my God. His thankfulness was to the Lord for the Philippians, stressing that God is the ultimate source of joy, of all joy. Sixteen times joy is mentioned here in this book. Fifty times Christ is mentioned Stressing that joy comes from Christ. Amen. See, that's where, if we were to understand, if we were to say, what's our theology of joy? What's our doctrine of joy? Where does joy come from? Well, this is a guy who's sitting in a jail cell, and he says that my joy is not dependent on my outward circumstances. My joy is dependent upon God. Therefore, I align my attitude, my inward disposition, not in accordance with the circumstance. I align my attitude with the God of joy. 
See, my theology of joy comes from God. Psalm chapter 4 and verse seven, uh, verses 7 and 8. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their coin and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. Psalm 1611 says this about our theology of joy. Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. See, it's in the presence of God that there's fullness of joy. See, part of our, but also part of our theology of joy comes to those who believe the gospel. Do you realize that those who do not know Christ as their personal Savior can never experience true joy? It's an impossibility. Because if it's God who puts gladness in the heart, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances, if it's God that gives a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of very difficult circumstances, you've got to know that God. Because there are truths from this word that you've got to hold on to in the midst. So it's to those who believe the gospel. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15 and verse 11. He said, these things I have spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So we see that joy is produced by God. We see that our, for our theology of joy, it's those who believe the gospel. But thirdly, it's being produced in them by the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What does Galatians 5, say? Right? What does the Bible tell us about that? That it's produced by the Holy Ghost, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, right? So if, if the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, how can the world have true joy? They can't. That's why they need to know the gospel. That's why we need to partner in the gospel together so that they can experience true joy because joy comes from God. Why do you think David said, and so many times it's misquoted, he says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, not my salvation. It's restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Because I'm not, it can't be my salvation because I'm not the one saving me. It's his salvation. And he's saying, bring that back to me. That's when he was in a dark time in his life. And he's saying, the only one that can restore that joy is you, God, is you. Another way that we have joy, our theology of joy, is the believer receives and obeys the word of God. Jeremiah 15, 16, thy words were found and I did eat them and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So when we have a, when we, when we accept the gospel, when we partner in the gospel, that's our basis for joy. The effect is, well, it's an obvious attitude here. When you partner in the gospel, there's joy. Then there's the basis of joy. But I'd like you to, to notice also, there's the thoughts of joy. Every remembrance of you. Take a look there. It says, and every remembrance. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. That's dealing with the mind. The mind is a very, very powerful tool 
that the Lord has given to each of us. And guess what? The mind can be used for good and it can be used for evil. And there are times in my life, just like your life, you can think back over and you can remember sad times and you can remember times of great joy. Paul could not contain the joy he had for the Philippians as he thought back, remembered the believers in Philippi. See, on a second missionary journey, Paul finds himself at Philippi, and you can find that in Acts chapter 16 and verse 9. And on the Sabbath, he goes to the river outside the city. You say, why would Paul go to a river outside the city on the Sabbath? Because if there was no synagogue in the city, all the Jews knew that they would meet at the river to worship God. That's what they did. That was part of their culture. That's how they knew. Because if a, if a city did not have a synagogue, there was not enough Jews there to be able to, to form that, that coalition there, if you will. And so Paul went out there, and you remember, there was a lady by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple. She came to know Christ. As he thought back over those people of Philippi, it brought great joy. You know, what are the, what are the things that, that we concentrate on many times? I'll tell you this. <laughs> As a pastor, I'll, I'll open up the parsonage door here. As a pastor, I can go out the back there and I can shake people's hands and say, God bless you. Thank you for that message, Pastor. That was such an encouragement to me. And, and oh, God bless you. What a, what a wonderful message. God used you today in my life. And I can hear 10, 15, 20, 25 of those things. And, of course, you ought to say that because I am the greatest pastor upon the face of the earth. I mean, come on. That's, I mean, we just need to get down the brass tacks. I mean, nobody can preach like I can preach. Come on. And all God's people said... Well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Please don't put this out on Facebook or YouTube or anything like that. <laughs> now that I woke up some of you, but you know what? The, 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 simple, the simple fact of the matter is that we can hear compliment. And it's always nice to get a compliment or hear uh, uh, too. But the simple fact of the matter is, side note, all glory goes to the Lord. All serious. All glory goes to the Lord. I just want to be a mouthpiece. But open up the parsonage door and you, you get positive things sometimes from people. And I can hear 25 positive things out the back door. And then somebody comes up to me and says, I heard somebody else preach that. Man, they did a much better job than you did. Uh, well, God bless you too. I hope you trip and fall on your way out. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, and then what consumes your thoughts? Not the 25 people that just told you, great job, way to go. Man, that was great. That encouraged my heart. You're thinking about that person said, a negative thing. And Paul says, upon every remembrance of you, he had great joy. Don't you think that there were some disappointments at Philippi? Don't you think that there were some people that let him down in Philippi? Uh, don't you think that there were some circumstances that were hard in Philippi? But he says, upon every remembrance of you, I think of you with great joy. Why? Because he chose to think of what God was doing in their lives for the positive, to, for the cause of Christ, for partnering in the gospel. 
And so many times, if we're not careful, folks, what happens is when we start thinking about our church body, what we'll do is we'll focus in on the negative, and we'll focus in on how Satan's trying to cause division. We'll focus in on how there's being nitpicking here or there. Instead of focusing and say, wait a second, look what God has done over these years. Look at how many people have come to know Christ. Look at uh, all the missionaries that we're supporting. Look at the new teachers that are being raised up for Connection Crew. Look at the young people as they're singing. Look at the people that were just baptized. How about the people that we just uh, led to the Lord? See, if we're not careful, we'll start focusing in on those other things instead of remembering what God has done in the lives of individuals. The first life-changing effect of partnering in the gospel is joy. The second is unity. It's unity. In studying the Word of God, you are taught to look for repetition. It's that you look for words or a group of words that are continually repeated in a passage. It helps give you some insight into the passage, what the writer was trying to get at. If you look at this passage here, verses 3 through 8, you'll find in verse 3, you'll find the word you. You'll find in verse 4, the word you all. You'll find in verse 5, your. You'll find in verse 6, the word you. You'll find in verse 7, you all, you, and ye all. In verse 8, you'll find you all. You know what he's talking about here? Eight times in these few short verses, Paul is using these words for a distinct purpose, and that is to stress unity within the body of Christ. There's a bond between believers. I want you to take a look at just some scriptures that imply the unity that believers are to have. Take a look at Ephesians, if you would. Turn over in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We are called the body. The body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. The Bible reads this way. And hath put all things under his feet and gave to him to be the head over all things to the church. The church, which is the body. The fullness of him that fulfilleth all in all. You can take a look and I won't... Uh, do this for lack of time, but you can write it down. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 13. You can see again the body of Christ, the idea of, of for as we are one body and one spirit and, one, and, and uh, are found one in Christ. And Paul is stressing that. We find also that we're called the bride of Christ. You can look it up in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9. We're also called the flock of God. 1 Peter 5, 2, the Bible says, feed the flock of God which is among you. We are called God's building in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. We are called the habitation of God in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. We're called the pillar and ground of truth in 1 Timothy 3, 15. And in Jesus' farewell prayer, I want you to turn there, Jesus' farewell prayer, in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, he prays for something. He prays for the unity of the believers. Jesus could have prayed for a whole lot of things. 
But one of the things that are stressed here in John chapter 17 is that he prayed for the unity of believers. Verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. What is the reason for unity in the church? One of the reasons for the unity of the church is for the sake of the gospel, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So if we are unified, it shows the world there's something different here. Why? Because we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different ethnicities. We all have different types of education. We all have different paradigms where we look through things, don't we? I mean, we all see things differently. But when you have the central focus as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are partnering in the gospel. All other things should fade away. I'm saying, I, I'm willing to put aside all these other things. Why? For the unity of of the body for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says in his prayer, I want the body to be unified as you and I are unified. Whoa. As Jesus and God are unified, guess what? There is no division between Jesus and God. Jesus is God. There is no separation between them. They are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. There's never been a division between the two of them. Jesus is in heaven with the Father. They're one. Wouldn't it be great if we had that type of unity here at Open Bible Baptist Church? Not for the sake of Open Bible Baptist Church, but for the sake of the gospel that they might believe that Jesus was sent. Amen. He shows us here, you say, well, what other words reveal unity in this passage of Scripture? You can find the word fellowship in verse 5. He says, for your, take a look at verse 5, fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You know what the word fellowship means? It means Participation means contribution. He's saying, I I'm thanking God for these people because they participated in the gospel. And so many times, the only thing we think about of participating in the gospel is handing out gospel tracts. And that's a good thing. That's a way to participate in the gospel. And we ought to do that. Everybody ought to be a witness. You can't get away from that. Everybody ought to be a witness. You can't get away from that. Amen. Everybody ought to be a witness whether you're handing out tracts, whether you have an opportunity to open up the Bible and share it with somebody. You say, well, pastor, I'm a senior saint and I can't get up and walk up and down the streets. No, you can. I understand that. But you know what? When a handyman comes in your house, you can hand him a track. Amen. You know, when you have your bills, you can put a track in there and send it to the, to the phone company or whoever you're sending your stuff to. You can do that. I ended, I'm not getting on your senior saints just because you can't walk up and down the streets. That's okay. But you know what? You do get out. You do go to restaurants, I know. <laughs> I know you do that. You could say to the waitress or the waiter, say, hey, we're Christians and we pray before our meal. 
And I'd like to ask you, is there anything that I can pray for you? You never know what type of opportunity that might open up. At least it could open up that when you leave the track with a good tip. If not, put another church's track in there. Don't put open Bibles. With a good tip. That it may open up, man, these people were willing to pray for me. Maybe I'll read what they've got. Maybe they're not some religious freak after all. And so many times we think that partnership in the gospel is only that, and we ought to be doing that. But you know what partnership in the gospel can also be? Being unified and quelching and quelching disunity. Quelching disunity. Say, wait a second. There's something bigger here than who said, she said, he said, we said, they said, everybody said. You know, or they did, they didn't do, they should have done, they didn't done. There's something bigger than that. So you know what? Let's forget about that, sir, ma'am, and we're going to be unified for this. But you just don't understand. No, I probably don't understand, but God does, and there's something bigger here than your issue. Remember, folks, I know we're American Christians, but let me let, me, let, me let you in on something. Life isn't all about us. I thought I would get a little bit more amens than that. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Christ shouldn't be one of many priorities. Christ ought to be my only priority. And when Christ is our only priority, everything else falls in line. But I know as American Christians, life is always about us. And I understand that, but that still doesn't make it right. And so we put those things aside. Why? Because we're fellowshipping. We are, we are partnering. We are participating in the gospel. There's another word here. Verse 7, take a look. Even as meet for you, for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Partakers denotes participation. These people were unified with Paul because of the same sustaining grace they shared. Paul was suffering for his defense and confirmation of the gospel. We know that, that he suffered throughout his ministry. But you know what? These people here in Philippi, they were trying to bear one another's burdens. Uh, they were trying to partner. They were to be partakers of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, it says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, why rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. See, the, Philippi the Philippian believers were also suffering. And Paul was saying that the same grace that is sustaining me can sustain you. I just want you to partner with me in the gospel. Life-changing effects of the gospel partnership, it brings joy, it brings unity, and it brings affection. Take a look at verse 8. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, there was an intense love. He says in the bowels. He had a deep love and affection for these believers. 
It was not just some flippant words. It was just not some, some passing fancy. The love that Paul had for these believers was existing in extreme degree. Bowels is literally a term for our inner organs. It has to do with uh, especially the heart, the liver, and the lungs. And in a figure, uh, figurative sense, it has to do with the seat of emotions. And he's saying, there's something that just tugs at my heart for you. You think of other Bible examples, Joseph's loves for his brothers when he could have done harm to his brothers. Instead, he showed love that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You remember the story of Solomon with the two harlots that came and the one had rolled over on her baby in the middle of the night and killed her own baby, suffocated her own baby, and then, and then she stole the other lady's baby and then went to Solomon and she was like, yeah, go ahead, split them in half. I don't care, you know. We'll have half, I'll have half. And the, the mom who loved the baby, the real mom, what did she do? She said, no, no, give that baby to the, the other woman. Her bowels yearned upon her for the safety of her own baby. There was an intense love for that child. But I believe here that though those, though that, that type of love is good, I believe that there was something more here. I believe it was deeper than human love, deeper than a love for a brother or for a son. He, lo he loved them with a divinely inspired love. Say, what do you mean? I quoted it a little bit earlier. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. Uh, uh, well, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul had basically stated that he had reckoned himself dead and that Christ is living in him. And one key to understanding this verse that I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ is that it was the love of Christ that constrained him. It was the love of Christ that motivated him. Christ's love for him, he understood that that's the same type of love that he ought to be sharing and expressing towards others. 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us this, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus, just, we, we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And it ought to be the love of Christ that constrains us to partner in the gospel. See, partnering in the gospel will produce joy, it will produce unity, and it will produce affection for other brothers and sisters it will produce an affection for those who are partnering with you in the gospel. It should do that, and it will do that. But it will also produce an affection for, you, for those who may not be partnering in the gospel. See, those who aren't partnering in the gospel, you ought to love them just as much as Christ loves them. Because look, trying to get them to partner in the gospel... You're not going to get them by degrading them. You're going to get them for loving them for Christ's sake. That's the way you get them. So let me ask you this evening. 
Are you participating in the fellowship, partnering in the gospel? So there should be love, a joy, there should be unity, and there should be affection. Maybe in your life you would take a look at your life this evening, you would say, I'm lacking in joy. Then, then maybe take a step back and say, how am I participating in the gospel? I mean, is Sunday just the thing that I do and the rest of the week I live for myself? Maybe you might say uh, that there's a situation in your life where you're saying, I am not unified with another brother or sister in Christ here. That, that'll destroy your joy as well. That, that'll hurt you big time. Maybe you need to step back and say, wait a second, I need to make things right with them and then continue to partner in the gospel. The Bible tells us about the affection, about the love that's sh shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Ghost when we accept the Lord. And we ought to have love one for another as we partner in the gospel. But those who may not be partnering in the gospel with us, we also need to love. Let me ask you, in what ways are you partnering in the gospel? I didn't say, what are all your responsibilities here at church? I said, in what ways are you partnering in the gospel? Folks, there is nothing greater than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing greater that we can partner in, that we can participate in, and God is so good that when we partner in the gospel, when we participate in the gospel, there are obvious effects because of that. There's joy, there's unity, and there's affection. Our God is so good that he's saying, partner in the gospel. And not only does he give us benefits here, but then when we get to heaven, we're going to get rewards for partnering in the gospel. The grace of God is amazing. And if we would just allow our God to bestow His grace upon us in the way that He wants to, we would see great things done here for the cause of Christ if we would just be willing to partner in the gospel. What are you doing to partner in the gospel?